Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who, on the surface, might look totally average. Scratch the surface and you find out they have amazing stories and really awesome ideas. Today's episode features somebody who has accomplished quite a lot and done many generous things for other people. Stick around after the episode appears to be over because my guest figured out that there was something else that she really wanted to communicate. We're featuring Carol Mertz. Carol Mertz directed a play called Anne Frank and Me, and I just want to tell you a little bit about Carol. Carol can act, write, direct, sing, play musical instruments, and she loves all things artistic. One winter, at her school, she directed their production of Anne Frank and Me. Now, Carol is a busy person, and when you direct a play, you can count on late nights and sometimes 70-hour work weeks, occasionally more. But soon, Carol faced a stunning and unexpected problem. A lot more kids wanted to be in the play than she actually needed. She could get by with far fewer than those who came out. Now, some directors, like athletic coaches, just hate making cuts. It's the worst week of the whole production when they have to tell people no. It, could, it just can break their heart to tell people they're not needed for the play or in the case of a coach for the team. Carol is that kind of director. So she went home and she asked herself, what can I do with all these extra people? This interview features a director who worked overtime, kept the actors and actresses in mind, and treated the audience to a rare and captivating performance. Hey, Carol. Hey, Tim. Carol, let's discuss just a few basics first. How long have you been acting, singing, playing instruments, and now directing plays? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's a long time. Well, I, I probably started acting in plays, I would say, junior high, uh, because our hometown, West Bend, had a great summer theater program. And it was a great way to kind of get started. And of course, I was very active in high school uh, as far as uh, plays. College, that kind of uh, slacked off. I didn't do it in college, but I did continue with the summer theater program. Um, as far as directing at Bishop Garrigan, I'll be starting my 11th year here in the fall as, as director. And I've been playing piano. I started lessons when I was eight, so... Well, over 40 years. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I just, I, I kind of going to get your secret origin story on this a little bit because uh, my parents made me go out to plays when I was 16. They forced me. And I, I was a very shy kid. And so I, I just would kind of like to know were, were you an outgoing kid and was theater a natural thing for you? Because being in a play was absolutely unnatural for me. That's how it felt. You know, I honestly, I, I don't remember. I remember. A little bit of a couple of my older sisters, you know, being in uh, some productions while they were in high school, and I just thought it might be fun to do. I think my experience being a, a 4-H member and always having to get up either at the club level or the county level to do uh, presentations, that was just natural for me. Both my parents had been elected officials, so I was used to going out in either stumping for them, you know, during campaigning or just talking to people. I think that's just the way I grew up. I was sort of forced into that by a natural way rather than mom and dad saying, you have to do this. 
it just it sort of happened that way. So well, I guess if your parents were elected officials, everybody wants to vote for the kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> the kid is six. The kid is cute. I love the kid. I want to vote for the kid. That's right. So That's I, right. I guess it just very very early. <laughs> Uh, do you remember the play that, maybe the first play that just really hooked you, where you just realized, oh, this is not my parents' thing, this is not my older sister's thing, this is my thing. I'm hooked. I think the was when I, it was a summer theater production, actually, and I ended up getting the lead in a musical, which is sort of ironic, kind of funny, because I'm not necessarily, don't consider myself the best singer, but anybody does musical theater also knows that a lot of musical theaters, 80% acting, 20% music, was um, Once Upon a Mattress. So it was a play off of the story, The Princess and the Pea, if you're familiar with that. And that, that was just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun to do. So I think that's... Kind gotcha, of, hooked. Yep. Then how many years did you do summer theater? Because I, I think that was high school, starting high school? High school, and then... I. You know, I'm not even sure when they finally disbanded that program. I seem to remember at least my sophomore year in college, okay. it was still going. But after that, I'm not too sure if it didn't disband after that. Okay, and then life takes many twists and turns, and then you wound up doing quite a number of other things. Uh, but and I also did, sorry to interrupt you, but I also did, when I moved to Algona, they had uh, Countryside Community Playhouse. That's no longer in existence, but that was like during the summer. They would put on a couple a couple of shows, and so I kind of started to get involved with that. So you almost never really stepped away from it. Not a long time, no. Okay. I mean, it's just in your blood. It's just like, oh, it's like playing tag. We have to go back to home base. We have to touch up. You know, it's fun to be somebody else. It is fun to be somebody else. You can get away with a lot more things. <laughs> so when you were... I guess 11 years ago, that's when you started directing. How did you yes. get into directing? Well, the year before, I had contacted um, Lynn Miller, who was the uh, principal at the time of Bishop Garrigan. And I think I believe I just sent him an email, said I you know, was interested if they were looking. And he said, well, we already have somebody doing it under contract this year, but I will keep you in mind if something changes. I thought, great. Never thought anything of it. And then I got a phone call from him like a year later, sometime in the summer. And he said, Carol, he said, are you still interested in maybe directing plays for Bishop Garrigan? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. So that's how it all began. Do you need any sort of certification or qualification to be a director? And part of the reason I ask is there's just certain jobs in America that pay an absolute fortune that require just no credentials whatsoever. Uh, believe it or not, Supreme Court justice, uh, Hollywood actor, college professor. I mean, sometimes there's things that, oh, this person has a PhD, but on the other hand, there's plenty of people who never had a degree who teach a college class. Right, a life experience. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the qualification is people think you're qualified, and I'm wondering if directing works that way. I think, well, as far as legally, like teaching, you have to be certified to teach mathematics or history or English. This, you do not. I think it's more like life experience. If you've done it before and have done maybe different aspects of, of the theater, you know, have you worked on as a stagehand? Have you worked 
the tech aspect, the lights or sound as far as, or acting or, you know, try to work with the costumes or, so you just have a, a general knowledge. I think at least in my situation and for our small rural Catholic high school, it was, you know, okay, yeah, she she wants to do it. I think the enthusiasm, the willingness is the number one criteria, you know. And then I think to stay, if you want to stay with it, is do, do you enjoy it? You know, is there something about it that fits your personality? Honestly, I, I know a bunch of people who do hiring. I know one guy who's hired, I think, 133 employees. And he said that uh, he looks primarily at your enthusiasm and how much you really want to do something. And uh, not so much your, you know, experience with things or your education. It's really just more about your passion and how hard you're willing to work. I agree. Yes. So you'll just pick it up from there. Okay, so 11 years of directing plays. uh, And then just uh, a year or so ago, Anne Frank and me, uh, what... I know it's been like, what, four years now? Four? Is it that long? Yeah, 2016 we did it. Okay. And Time flies when you get older, I it think. It does, but then just when you told me about it, it just seemed so fresh and vivid. It obviously made a big impact. Uh, just a little bit of the basics. What's what's the general plot and who are the characters of Anne, Frank, and me? Okay, the general plot is it starts out, and I use air quotes when I say the present, um, because actually the play was written, I believe, in, in the late 90s, okay, or... And so it, it, the present is like 1996, 95, 97, whatever. And it's about these kids. They're in their classroom, probably history classroom and, or, uh, or an English classroom, and they had to read the diary of Anne Frank, okay? And they have an attitude that, oh, yeah, really? They don't really believe the Holocaust ever happened, they're subscribing to that narrative. It's ancient history. How does that apply to me? Et cetera, et cetera. And what happens is the main character is a girl named Nicole. And she gets hit by a car. I mean, nothing severe, but enough that she's knocked unconscious. You know, she's battered and beaten up, bruised pretty good, you know, from the accident. But all of a sudden, she, when she regains consciousness, she's no longer um, Nicole in the United States in 1997. She is Nicole in France during World War II, and she is also a Jew. So it kind of parallels a little bit of what happened with Anne Frank. You know, things are going along if, you know, you know what happened in France, you know, in Europe uh, as Nazism uh, took over. And then her family, because of being Jewish, they had to leave. They got, you know, parents lost their jobs. They had to flee their home. They had to go into hiding. Very similar, like Anne Frank. And then... Um, ironically, uh, you know, give it in the end, they're on the on a cattle car on the way to Auschwitz, and Nicole meets the actual Anne Frank. Now everybody knows it, that Anne Frank, I think, died at Dachau. I'm, isn't was it Dachau she died? Or I can't remember. But she didn't. I know she didn't die at Auschwitz. I can tell you that. So, but so there's a little bit of creative license as far as the storytelling. But it was the idea. 
that this girl who like ancient history, come on, how's this apply to me? I don't believe it happened. Sort of lived it firsthand and really saw what went on, and then meeting the actual girl that she was reading about. I feel like that's a brilliant choice on the part of the author because really Nicole stands for the reader and we can identify with because, okay, some people are history junkies, they love history, but then there's plenty of other people who really don't care. It's just not their thing, it's not their hobby, exactly. not whatever. And so here you've got this girl who, you know, maybe like half the people is thinking history is so yesterday, why do I care? And then she's placed into this situation. And, of course, everybody can get sucked into a good story. I just feel like this is a brilliant, brilliant choice on the part of the author. Well, and and not only does it take just her, it takes, like, her family. Her family that she has um, in present-day United States, her friends, um, and, like, her, you know, maybe a, a teacher or something. And they all get transported into this World War II. And so their names um, maybe get slightly um, altered. Like, for instance, like Nicole and her sister and her parents, like her name is Nicole Burns. It becomes Nicole Bernhardt. Okay. You know, her sister who was, had a a nickname called Little Bit becomes Lizbet. Okay, gotcha. So everybody... um, their name sort of gets changed to okay. make it more like Jewish sounding, okay. you know, or French okay. sounding. Okay. Bad kids in class uh, get reincarnated as Nazis. No, not no, not like she knows. Oh, that's that's Joey from yeah, no algebra or whatever. Right, exactly. But he yeah. gets transformed into Joseph Carl or something like that. Right, gotcha. Right, okay, okay. Um, I feel like everybody on one level feels like they know a lot about World War II. And that's just because there's just so many books and so many movies about World War II. One time I was teaching a World War II class and I thought, oh, I'm going to look up and find out what the top 10 movies are about World War II. It was so naive of me. I I couldn't find a list of top 10. All the lists were the top 100 movies about World (laughs) War II. I I came to the conclusion that there must be 10, 20,000 movies about World War II, and then just the books, oh my gosh, you just go to Amazon, it's endless. Mm -hmm. So I just, I feel like on one level, people feel like, oh, I know everything about World War II, but did you find yourself, once you got into the play, oh, I'm kind of forced to do just a little bit of research here and there? I I would say, yeah, a little bit. More in the, um, not the broad spectrum of things that went on politically, but what was everyday life like? For these people, as they progressed from, we're living decent, normal lives to, nope, sorry, your home is no longer your home. You know, you need to get out. You know, then they got put into certain parts of the city. Then they were, um, you know, usually put on a cattle car, some kind of a train car, and shipped off to different concentration camps and. And it was interesting, too, because I think a lot of times, you know, you're talking about movies and, and books. And, like, even if you were to ask me to name certain movies of World War II, who are the main characters? They're all adults. Yeah. This is also, I mean, we have adults in this play as well. But it's mainly from a, 
from the teenager's oh, perspective. Wow. wow. When you think about it, it yeah. really is. She is the central character. And, you know, of course, whatever actress plays Nicole, she is in every single scene in this play. That's awesome. You That's know. awesome. It kind of reminds me of uh, Swing Kids, which I don't know if you saw, but that was a World War II movie that essentially was about German teenagers who were caught up in this swing dance craze. And uh, they were using this as a way to resist the Nazis because the Nazis, all of their music was uh, solemn and serious. And it was like relentlessly serious music. And so this was essentially American jazz. And they just despised it. And so these kids would do this as an act of rebellion. And they actually made a movie about it called Swing Kids which was a box office blob in 92. <laughs> but then after that, it, it's detained this cult following. And I saw it again recently, and it's actually quite good. I'll have it's to look really into it. I've never, I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's just such a weird blend of the music's fantastic, the dancing is spectacular, and then the Nazi element in society just gets heavier and heavier and heavier until everyone is smothered by it. So it's just this, this weird land totally and the characters are pretty fantastic but it just kind of reminds me of that because it's i mean nazism was a, a remaking of the whole culture uh, yes. this is something people maybe are not as familiar with but everything got nazified uh your wedding got nazified every bride got a copy of mein Kampf. sunday dinner got nazified they insisted on what they called the one pot stew with no meat you were supposed to take the money that you spent on the meat and donate it to a charity that would go to maybe like a German widow or a German orphan. The schools were utterly remade. They taught racial hygiene to six-year-olds. I, I just, everything was redone. They had their own version of the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. This was the big worry at the end of World War II is, okay, we've had 12 whole years of people just being thoroughly imprinted with Nazi ideology. Um, what are we going to do with 68 million Nazis when the war is over? So, so I, I'm just thinking this play must have done that kind of thing, must have just stamped uh, the culture with there are Nazis everywhere. Right. Like, there's no aspect of your life that was free from it. No. No. That's kind of the premise. So, okay, um, I'd like to get into one of the things that I just think makes you such a good director <laughs> who produced such a touching play. Um, in theory, if you didn't have a lot of actors and actresses, what's the least number of people you could, you could have gotten by with? With this play, 11. It, I believe the when you look at the script, you had to have at least four men okay. and seven women. Okay. But then how many did you actually settle on? 25. 25? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, and, and I'm also, you know, I like you were saying earlier, I, I just hate, you know, to, to cut people. Because if, if they're willing to come out and... And kind of like you were saying, oh, my parents forced me. Some kids, it's like, they might not be forced, but they're like, I really think I want to do this. You know, you don't want to discourage them. So can I include them in some way? But I'm also of the mindset that I don't always believe that every kid needs to have a part because that's just life. You know, we're not always going to get the spot on the team or we're not always going to get the job you know, or something like that. So that's a good life lesson. And that happened to me when I was a sophomore. Um, you know, we used to do one acts, three one acts at West Bend in the spring. Average, just say the average cast for easy math, 10 people per, there was like 32 people. There was two people that did not get a part. I mean, could the director probably work those two people in? Yes. Would I have probably done that? Yes. 
but he did not. It was me and my friend Chris. And so we were like, oh, aren't we losers? (laughs) But he said, hey, do you guys want to run the sound and the lights? We're like, sure. We had a blast. We had an absolute blast. And also I learned about another aspect or element of play production, which was invaluable, you know, in years to come. So when God, you know, Closes door, opens a window, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, but yeah. yeah, so I ended up with 25 because based on certain scenes, like in the beginning, they start off with the classroom scene or and then there's a school dance. Well, to me, I thought, well, this looks odd if there's only like five kids at this school dance. Right. At least I could have more bodies to make it look a little bit more realistic. Right. And so they did that. They played the kids, you know, in the big group scenes or like when we were... Um, all the the Nazis, uh, or excuse me, when they shoved all the Jews on the cattle car. If I had kept almost to that minimum, bare minimum, that cattle car wouldn't have looked very crowded. Right. You know, so by having more bodies in there, I'm like, you guys are just going to have to sit on top of one another because that's essentially the way it was. Well, and and, you know, I've been in that place on an amateur level to know that sometimes the the dead parts or the the things where you don't speak, uh, (laughs) to a certain degree, sometimes those are the most rewarding parts. Oh, exactly. Because the director either gives you something really cool to do, like I saw one play where this guy and this girl were off in the corner and they were just flirting the whole time. It was almost a scene stealer. And I think, like, I saw the play twice, then the director made them ratchet it down, like, in the next... Because it just was an epic distraction. But, I mean, that's just one example of many, but sometimes those are the most... Either the most fun or satisfying parts. Exactly. And plus, too, there's a lot less pressure. Yes. You know, you don't have all... You don't have the lines to to memorize, and yeah. you can just relax and, and have a good time. And Yeah. So, so you just must be very soft-hearted, because something that just sort of occurs to me is... Did you go home? Did you go home and say, well, gosh, if I work in 25, I wonder how many extra hours a week this is going to add to my schedule or just how many extra headaches am I going to have managing people? You know, for one, no, really no extra hours by adding the extra people. Um, Extra headaches. I had to take a, a little time and figure out, okay, what to come up with ideas for them to do because in the background, because a lot of times those background actors make a scene come to life. Mm. It, it seems more realistic. Like people say, yeah, that's, that's how it looks when I go out or when I've been to a dance, you see people talking or, or laughing or whatever the case may be. You see the wallflower, you see other people, you know, those that never sit down, that type of thing. But, um, so it was just coming up with different things for them to do. And so I would throw that out to those kids in, and the kids themselves, after they became a little bit more comfortable with the scene, um, even if they were inexperienced, they're like, Hey, can, can I dress like this? Can this be my costume or can I do this? And I'll be like, Sure, let's give it a try. And if it doesn't distract from the main action, I'm okay with it. Okay, so then not only did you bring in these extra kids, you actually allowed them to be creative and to have some ideas. Yes, give them a little autonomy. You know, once um, once they understood or they got used to me directing them first. And, and it didn't happen with kids that were like first years, but you usually find it with kids that have been on stage 
a couple of years. Okay. You know, they're, they're getting used to it. And that's part of my goal as a director too, is that they learn the aspect of plays and learn craft a little bit so they can become a little bit more creative. So I like the more experienced kids, a little autonomy, know your character. Okay. Cause I said, I can do the script analysis, which I do all the time with every show I do. Um, but you are the one that lives in this character all the time. So, so it, how does this character think? How do they behave? Exactly. And I always learn? tell them, draw on your own experiences. Think about people that you know, people you've met. You know, I've got an uncle. He's got this really strange cork man. He's always like snapping his fingers or something. <laughs> just something stupid. If that fits your character, then do okay. it. You okay. know? That's a, just a very generous attitude. I'm just thinking about something Alfred Hitchcock said one time, maybe as a joke. He said, actors should be treated like cattle. <laughs> they should just be herded. And uh, then somebody later said, you said actors are cattle. And he said, I didn't say actors are cattle. I said they should be treated like cattle. <laughs> and here you're doing the opposite. Yeah. How dare you contradict the great I know. Robert Hitchcock. I know. But it, it doesn't always work. Some, it, I think it depends, too, on... The show you're doing, the scene, okay. you know, there, there are certain things that like I, this is my vision. I'm the director. It's my vision on stage, but it's also a collaborative effort with everybody, including tech crew, stage crew. Um, but there are sometimes there are certain things. No, I want it done this way, okay. you know, and I don't deviate from that, but that's my prerogative. That's my job and my prerogative as director. Okay. <laughs> so. Very good. Did, uh, how did the kids respond to all this? I mean, did you ever have, I don't know, an emotional moment or like a dramatic moment where, I don't know, some kid was short on sleep and just had a bad day and just breaks into tears? and Or, or were people, I don't know, for lack of a better word, kind of professional about everything? I mean, I just how did the whole staging and everything go? Um, as far as, you know, usually um, at our school, because we're a small school, um, Kids are involved in so many different things. It, it, you have to be in order to make all the programs work. You know, where the larger urban areas, you know, they have, they have a more bigger gene pool, and so a lot of kids are specialized. They're only in one or two avenues of, of interest. So the, I think the kids generally are just used to, uh, they have long days, and they're used to being in a lot of different things, and their time getting divided up you know, six different ways. So, you know, really never had anything like that. We do have kids that are like, I think sometimes they have the, oh, I don't want to go. So they'll have some excuse while they're, they aren't at practice. But as far as like any kind of meltdowns or any tirades or anything, like, no. Okay. So never had whole, that issue. The whole Iowa work ethic that sometimes we from Iowa maybe just get praised for just mm -hmm. kind of kicked in with the oh yeah absolutely and then the whole iowa nice thing that oh you know i really don't want to create a gigantic bus or drama i just want to be in the play and participate and have fun okay. so yeah gotcha yeah. tell me i mean this is a very emotional play tell me a, a scene or a story from the play that just was very powerful um two really come to mind um after we are in world war ii Okay. The World War II era of the play. Um, Nicole's parents, they find out that her father is working for the French Resistance. And his, her mom found this, you know, 
piece, well, come to find out, it was parts to make bombs. Mm. And she's like, and they have this fight scene. And she's like, you're making bombs in our house with our children here? You know, how dare you? Um, you know, you're going to bring down basically the authorities. You're putting us all in danger. And I had the two girls, Nicole and her little sister, Lizbeth, who's fairly young. She's probably at like 10 years, supposed to be like 10 years of age. Um, and Lizbeth is just shaking. They're hugging each other. And and I, when I directed um, the two actors playing the parents, I said, you have to let everything out. And anything you can think of that made you scared, made you angry in your own life, you know, especially the, the gal that was playing the mother, you have to let it come out. And they were just like screaming at each other. It was very, it was very realistic. And they were just, the girls were just shaking because they weren't used to their parents, one, fighting like this. Okay. And Nicole being older is understanding the repercussions of what possibly her father is doing. You know, I mean, I think the, neither one of them like Nazis, but they understand what could happen if they don't toe the line. Um, another um, was when all the Jews had been put on the train car and then they're taken to Auschwitz. Okay. And if you've ever studied, they talk many times about when they brought them off the train car how they would get separated. They might separate men from women and, and uh, children from parents and that sort of thing. And it was basically just an arbitrary. So like whoever got moved to the left was going to live and, and be work, either worked to death. And then those on the right, they're just automatically taking them to the gas chamber. So we had that separation going on. And I had two girls... Um, I said, you guys you can pretend your sisters are just really good friends. Um, what, and they actually were very good friends in real, in life. real life. So that helped. And they each got separated to different uh, sides. Okay. So they weren't together. And um, they were like, no. And one tried to run after and grab the other one. And one, like, one of the guards pulled them back. And then I had the other guard shoot oh the girl gosh. right there in the back. And... And she, I, you know, had to teach her how to scream, which is kind of, we always joke about it. But I had to teach her how to scream, and she just let out this blood-curdling scream of anguish and fear and, you know, when her friend got shot, her sister. And then everybody just dispersed. It pretty much, lights went down. We just had, um, we did have a prop Nazi flag, and then this dead girl on the stage. Oh, wow. And as the spotlight closed in to nothing we had in the instrumental version of uh Hatikva, uh, the national anthem of israel playing in back it's it, it was such a powerful moment it was like it, seriously it brought me to tears and a lot of people um who saw the play I and mean, it was it was dead quiet in the gym just dead quiet you couldn't hear you couldn't hear a sound that's it, amazing that was a very i think it was just a very shocking moving scene which i think we've seen a lot of stuff like that in world war ii movies before especially if they're dealing with the holocaust but you know i just i think just right up there close and personal wow wow that's just it's kind of emotionally devastating and the audience just really really reacted to it strongly huh yes yeah um obviously i just feel like the public is just addicted 
to World War II stories. I mm-hmm. mean, thousands of movies at this point. Uh, Tom Hanks is making a World War II movie coming out called Greyhound. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. He is doing a third series. I guess he did Band of Brothers, and then he did One on the Pacific. And these were 10-part series, and he's narrating, I think, this one about the airmen of World War II, which is another 10-part series. Uh, so I'm just speaking about Tom Hanks, but there's always lots of mm-hmm. books. Uh, always lots of podcasts, just tons of information about World War II. What do you think it is about World War II that just fascinates people, that people cannot get enough of World War II? Because you notice there's just nowhere near this amount of material, say, about World War I or no. the Korean War or, I don't know, the Soviet-Afghan conflict. There's right, just exactly. not, nothing. I mean, just, well, there's, there's a little, but just it's dwarfed. Well, oh. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I thought of, I've thought about this before, and I believe I've come to the conclusion. I think it's because it it shows, and I don't like I said, I don't know if best is quite the, the proper term, but it definitely shows the the most extreme examples of the goodness of humanity and the evilness that humanity is capable of, you know, heroes. And then we look at, you know, people like, you know, Hitler and Stalin. And even though Stalin was technically on our side, right? you know, but just the best and the worst of humanity is enduring, can be seen. And that dichotomy is going on exactly at the same time. And I think that's what fascinates people about the human condition. Because we, we know that there were, I guess, the, uh, the ultimate victims and many, many victims in World War II. And so we gravitate toward that. I, I remember as a kid reading that 6 million people died in the Holocaust. And then as an adult, no, it was actually 11. That it was mm-hmm. 6 million like Jews, Jews and yeah. 5 million other people. And just the number of groups that Hitler targeted was essentially endless. Um, and so there's the victims, but then there's the heroes as well. And I think a lot of people can relate to maybe having had a grandparent or a great-grandparent who served in World War II and perhaps did something heroic, or a great-grandmother who perhaps was a Rosie the Riveter who worked in the factories. I, I just maybe everybody can relate to that. And like you said, the monsters of humanity mm-hmm. as well. And, and I think people have just wondered why would anybody be so evil? And so this, there's many books about the evil of the Nazis and, and what would allow a whole nation to be seduced to this level right. of evil. So I just, I, I think maybe your vision that it's, we see the best and the worst, is that I, kind of what you think? I think so, yeah. Okay. And because it's been 75 years and just no sign of let up uh, with World War II. So uh, it's a very, very heavy play. Um, and you're directing high school students. Yes. And I've had a few people just say to me, you know, I just don't know if a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old maybe has the emotional range to play this type of heavy material. What did you find? Um, I would agree with that uh, on a surface level. I just think because they haven't had enough life experience under their belt. So that's what ha- that's where my job comes in because I'm older you know, to, and, and we talked about a lot of times at practice, you know, we would talk about things that happened 
in World War II, and especially, you know, like with the, the plight of the Jews and, and the whole, even some, you know, political aspects, how this, you know, how this came to be. And um, I'm saying, okay, let's look at, um, let's look at like our current situation at that time. You know, I said, you guys may not realize it, but I said, like, let's talk about Christians. You know, Christians, there's probably more Christians being put to death in the last year than there have been, probably in the whole gamut of world history. People may not realize that, but, it, you know, it's true. So there's still these persecutions going on. And also being at a Catholic school, which was great because we really, I could really infuse our Catholic faith into yeah. this as well. And in fact, um, our shirts, I had normally what had been done in the past, we always put like the cast and the director and who was on soccer. And I said, guys, I really don't want to do that with this one. I said, I want to put just one phrase. Okay. And they're like, okay. And so they're like, what is it? And I said, it is the, it is something we need to all take away. All of us need to take away. And it's the last line that Nicole says, and it's a, really a running theme okay. throughout. Okay. And it, it was, so on the back of our shirts, it says, it says, God is watching us and I am a witness. Wow. That's powerful. So to say that he's watching, we all have to be witnesses to injustice and stand up and say, and I, at, before we started the first act and the second act, um, I started off with a couple co quotes, you know, it, the one kind of varies, you know, from that pastor Niemöller, um, but he, you know, in, in Germany, they first came for the communists. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist, right. you know, they, yeah. um, they came for the Jews. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They came for the Catholics. I didn't speak up because I was Protestant and there, you see variations of right, it, right, right. but essentially the last line is always the same. And it says, then they came for me. And by that time, there was no one left to speak. So I started, before we even opened Act 1, I read that. I mean, I didn't come out on stage. I just read it over the, uh, the, the mic. Um, and then before we opened Act 2, I read from Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. So sort of driving those. So to get the kids to give you the emotional depth that you needed, in a way there's an educational function to mm -hmm. what you were doing. Yes. And to just really, gosh, I mean, um, I guess show them the evil of humanity, like the bottom of humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really powerful. And, and I guess you're really helping out the history teachers and the literature <laughs> teachers and the religion teachers. I hope so. So you, know. you certainly deserve a raise. That's <laughs> Why, sure. thank you. Yeah. 100% raise, 200% raise. Who am I? Sounds good to me. To the statistics on things. Were there any really emotionally painful moments for you personally? I mean, you, you said things that were powerful, mm -hmm. but was there anything that just, I don't know, really just cut your heart? I, um, I don't really think so. I think that, uh, that we're just sad. Um, but again, more like powerful that might elicit that type of emotion, which is, you know, a couple of the scenes that I talked to. And also at, at the end too, when Nicole re regains consciousness, 
in um, back in the present, okay, she is like, yes, okay, this happened. And it does matter because if we don't, if we don't stop it, we don't try and stop it, it will happen again or it continues to happen. We have to make people aware because there have been monsters as far as human rights violations and and killing people just um, with abandoned leaders since Hitler. Oh, for sure. But it's amazing how people don't know about them. No, they don't. They don't. I mean, I I teach a class in the Cold War, and the names are just endless. Pol Pot. Pol Pot killed 2 million Cambodians out of Mm -hmm. 8 million Cambodians. Idi Amin. Uh, Really, we could just kind of go on and Mm -hmm. on and on. Um, You know, talk about Cambodia, you know, Khmer Rouge. Yeah. They don't know. So. Right. People don't know this stuff. And the tagline at the end of World War II was never again. And it has happened hundreds of times again. Uh, Rwanda, the Holocaust is another example. Yes. I I believe Mm -hmm. there's gulags in China right now where Mm -hmm. something like a million people are in various gulags. Uh, you know, countries fall apart. Venezuela fell apart. And mm-hmm. So I, I think it's very important for people to be historically aware. Of maybe that's also part of the fascination for World War II. I'm just not quite sure. But did you ever have a moment with this play where you were just thinking, gosh, I've got 25 kids. This is many, many hours per week. What if we can't pull this off? I always think that. I think of, of any show because going, going back to the kids involved in everything and then um, th- this play here, we usually do musicals in the fall, but so like the, I'll call them the straight plays or he's done in, in the spring, which is main, we call it the spring, but it really starts in January. So it's like January through March. That's winter. Okay. It's Iowa. That's winter. Right. So there's juggling all those schedules plus weather. You know, right? You know, God throws the whole Mother Nature thing at us, yeah. and you know we're having to let out school early, or we're just dismissing classes because of bad weather. So it's like, oh my God, to get all this. How are we going to do this? You know, we're not. You know, I've got this practice lost and that practice. So I mean, there's always that, but it was never like we're not going to pull it off because of the kids' ability. That yeah. So the kid's ability and the kid's work ethic were not a question, but did you ever think, you know, we've got four practices to go, oh no, snow day, and then you lose a very valuable... (laughs) Oh yeah, Oh, that's always a big fear. Well, it's kind of funny you bring that up, because we had, when we were transitioning from World War II back to present, kids were having, we just didn't have enough time to get the set, you know, set and those kids back into their present day costumes. Okay. So my friend Greg, who runs the tech and the sound teaches there at Gary goes, well, I have an idea, but you're not going to like it. And I said, what's that? This is Wednesday night. Our first. And I said, he goes, well, can you come up with something that we can fill the we can, Even, even if you're there, it's called dead air. Okay. You know, yeah. just to have an audience sit there with nothing going. He goes, maybe you could, write something and I looked at him I said we go on in two nights (laughs) like what so he goes he goes I told you you weren't gonna like it so I thought but we really needed the time and you just like I said you can't just let the audience sit there right so I thought what what can what can we do what can we do 
so throughout this play, they have like the BBC okay. doing um, broad, you know, broadcast, oh, okay, and it, it kind of is taking you on, and you can see how Nazism is pulling more and more rights, mm. you know, from the Jews. You know, right. Jews are no longer allowed to do this, or this has been closed, or whatever. So I thought, well, maybe we can do some BBC announcements. So, like, the next day, um, I happened to... <laughs> I took a couple, a couple hours off from work in the afternoon, left early, and I sat down with my big Holocaust reference book. I think okay. I had it when I was going through college. I was a history major. Okay. And, like, and then it came to me, I'm like, let's take them on a timeline. So we had ended with them being shipped to Auschwitz. Okay. So I took them on that it was, you know, the like end of World War II, the liberation of Auschwitz, okay. the Nuremberg trials. Okay. And then the last one, we segued into, um, it was, wasn't BBC, but it was like, this is KXMQ, you know. So back in 1997 in the United okay. States. Gotcha. And um, saying Mother Ter- when Mother Teresa had died, oh. and and then I used a quote um, from Mother Teresa that you know we are um, all conduits, um, and the the light is Jesus, and when we don't let the light pass through us, that that is when darkness is allowed to spread. So it can fit in completely. With the whole theme yeah. of what even what the author had, you know, in her, in her play. It's so kind of another way of saying the Edmund Burke quote, right? That you had at the beginning that mm-hmm. that uh, if we don't let God's light shine through, bad things will happen. There, mm-hmm. I just paraphrased her quote and made it worse. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, but no, exactly, and that's sort of like I said. You know, here we're talking, you know, fifty years later, it's still it's cyclical. So. Yeah. Let me ask, uh, so this is a very heavy play, and, uh, and just many times you thought, maybe I can't pull this off, but then you did pull it off. Uh, just to kind of thematically or tonally go in the opposite direction, was there just a hilarious moment? Just some, maybe backstage, maybe something somebody did that was just something you will always remember and treasure. Um, let's see. Oh, it was like really fun during play. Like Nicole has a boyfriend or whatever, and they're and they're supposed to they're supposed to kiss, and then like typical little sister pops up from behind the the sofa like mom mom. <laughs> so just doing that scene over and over was fun, and also too it was like in the beginning of the play when we were in present, there was uh, one kid and he. He was one also that came over into World War II. Um, it was played by Tom Colash, I remember. And he was like the the class jokester or, or prankster. So there was like a lot of, there were several um, light and funny moments okay. in the beginning. So it, it was sort of kind of a trick, you know, that it plays on yeah. the audience. You know, and then Tommy was always just coming up with just zany things to do anyway because it was part of it. It was like yeah. his personality, so. That's awesome. Well, just on a side note, I always feel like that's a good trick that authors use, is that you take a really serious play, but then you have these incredibly light moments, and what it does is that it lessens the tension, mm-hmm. and then you bring the tension straight back. Back, yes. And so just a, an example of this is not necessarily a funny moment, but 
shockingly, there are a few funny moments in Schindler's list. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, here Schindler mm-hmm. is interviewing all these secretaries, and uh, he hires all the young, pretty ones because Schindler was actually uh, a guy who cheated on his wife quite a bit. I mean, that's the interesting thing about Schindler is that he never did a single nice thing for anybody until he saved something like 1,200 people from the Nazis. Then he went straight back to being kind of a money-grubbing, womanizing, extra-drinking jerk. Just kind of an interesting character. That's the great mystery of Schindler. But then there's another scene where they show all the people dancing and having a good time. And so you just, you sort of get lulled into this Mm -hmm. sweet moment right before everything gets very heavy and dark. Sounds like this play did that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. And and your your point is is very true, very valid, because I don't think there's anything that accentuates good drama better than well-placed moments of humor or levity. Absolutely. Let me ask, you said like you had many moments where you thought, I don't know if I'm going to pull this off. And you say frequently you have these moments when directing plays, and yet you've been involved in directing for 11 years and done a stellar job. Uh, do you think that helps? Because sometimes people just, I always felt like a little bit of stage fright helped me as an actor. Just oh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. And you can always tell too, um, when it comes to opening night, if the kids are ready because they're just, they're jumpy. They got a lot of nervous energy. It's it. I always can tell that point. They are, they need an audience now. Mm-hmm. They need feedback. Okay. So that extra nerves, extra mm-hmm. jitter gets rechanneled on yes. stage. Yes. Excellent. So it works for them and it works for you. And it's amazing too, because like I'll be watching in performance and I'm like, oh my gosh, they finally did that. They never would do it like in practice. I'd be like, okay, I want you to do this or I, and I'd show them or tell them and over and over again. And they never really did it. And then all of a sudden in performance, I'm like, well, there it is. Where did that come from? I've never seen it. I tried, but... My dad, the coach, said that there's practice players and game players. Well, that's that's a good way to put it. I guess. Um, let me ask, did you learn anything from this whole experience? Um, I, I learned, as well as I think the kids learned, too. Because up until that point, and most people do, they want... They like comedies. People just, they love comedy. Everybody loves to laugh. And especially, like I said, during, we call it the spring play, but it's really set in the winter. And, and of course, everything is dull and gray. And, you know, so they just want something to brighten them up. But I, that year, I was like, I really want to do a drama. I really want to do a drama. And, and so naturally, you picked the heaviest drama. Well, <laughs> I, I had, had thought about doing um, another play. It was in the fall. Um, I think, oh, I think I'm going to do this. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to read a few more scripts. Okay. And there was another one, a similar idea, which is based on a true story, but similar idea of a, a young Catholic teenager, um, I believe in Poland, who okay. had, she had hidden uh, like four people in her barn for oh. like two years okay. for Jews. Okay. It was based on a true story. Gotcha. Um, and I almost did that one, but this one I thought there were aspects that I liked. Um, I like sort of like the little time travel. Um, I like the, the big theme of, you know, God is watching. We need to stand up. Plus two, I could incorporate more kids. Oh, yes. You know, um, for instance, you know, I think I may have told you pr- previously, like with the Nazis, the directions are 
because their cast was so small that they were just supposed to be yelling these orders and this was supposed to be taking place off stage. Well, I had the kids, let's help, let's visualize it for the audience. And we brought them on stage to do it, you know. So that's why I, I settled on, on this one. But yeah, no. Very powerful. Now, what's something about theater that people just don't know? We go to the plays, we see movies, we watch television shows, there are movies about movies. Maybe people think they know everything. <laughs> what is there about plays, etc., that people just don't know? Um, and I, I might have mentioned this earlier. Um, it is a collaborative effort. I think the, the people that, of course, and understandably, if you're in the audience, who are the people you're going to go, oh, great show, great show, are the actors. But I am here to tell you that those stage crew people that are moving sets and um, and then in uh, communication with the tech booth that are running lights okay. and um, sound. And like I know for like this show, I had several... Um, like things I had to incorporate, several sound effects. Um, I used uh, uh, different music. Um, I'm not even sure I was going to show you, but I'm not sure if I had it. But just tons of sound effects that I have to find and then say, okay, on page 31, we need a air raid siren. Um, you know, on page uh, 42, we need... Edith, some music by Edith Pilaf, you know, okay. and, and then I have to find either that music. A lot of times you can find many of that stuff already in public domain and stuff like on YouTube. And, but I provide the sound person, okay. tech people, the, the link, and then they get it downloaded and, and then insert that stuff. So it's all about timing, okay. you know? So that's, I think what people don't realize also too. Um, what they don't understand is that there's, if another director would do this show, it might look completely different than my production. Because again, it's the director's vision. And they might have come be approaching it from a different mindset, different experiences, you know, or different experience level. So, and you can deliver lines, most lines you can deliver at least two or three different ways. That's right. And it can create a whole different meaning. Well, I, I think both those points are excellent. And I certainly have stumbled into the trap of thinking, oh, the lead actress and actor are the most important people because mm -hmm. they're prominent and because mm -hmm. they're up front. Right. And I, I certainly have stumbled into the trap of just absolutely forgetting the whole set would fall down mm. and the stage would be dark <laughs> if you didn't have the tech crew, the construction people, the exactly. people changing the scenery, and then just uh, the actors and actresses in the crowd scenes. Costumes. Yeah. Props. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That just does, everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't know. It'd be like trying to survive without, I don't know, muscle and bone. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. So, We'd be like dwarf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Carol, this has just been absolutely fantastic, and I just have one last closing question for you, and it's this. Let's just fast forward, and it's quite some number of decades from now, and you are 100 years old, and you are sitting on the porch of your house, and your loving husband is holding your hand, and many of your <laughs> actors and actresses have 
come to visit and they are surrounding you and it's a beautiful sunny day and you are just reflecting back on a wonderful life where theater was always there. What are you looking back on? What are you thinking right now at this moment? What type of life do you hope to have lived? Um, I always say this because my husband and I don't have children of our own. So I always call my play kids, my kids, you know, you're my kids. And just looking back, they really, even though they may forget me, I don't know, but I will always remember them. You know, they have enriched my life. God has blessed me tenfold by giving me the opportunity to do this and have those kids in my life. And, and I remember um, last year when I was trying to decide, you know, kind of a play to do, um, I had some kids here. We were doing some practicing for the musical, some line uh, rehearsal. And one of the girls, in fact, she play, had played Lisbeth in this play, the, the young sister. And she said, we got talking about this play. She said, I would love to do a play that affected people like that again. And she was a freshman at the time when she did this. And so she was a senior last year, but she was, wow. that's what she said. I just, that, that quote really stuck with me. So I'm like, yes, I did my job. Carol, I did my job. I think they will certainly <laughs> remember you. Well, I hope so. And In a good way. Is, this has been absolutely wonderful. Oh, it's wonderful visiting. And I, like I said, I like talking about this show. If anybody out there is listening that is doing high school productions or if you're in a summer theater stock or something, this is a great way to uh, get the kids involved in a very interesting uh, play. There's so many layers to it. Um, they're, they're playing teenagers, so that helps. Uh, but I think it's something that not only touched, I think, the kids, the, the teenage actors themselves, but the audiences as well. So it's a, it's, I highly recommend it to anybody that's working, especially with high school kids. Thank you, Carol, very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary, but it's not over yet. Carol, after we finished the interview per se, was reminded of a quote by Mother Teresa, and she wanted to share that with the audience. It's about what causes people to be good and what happens when there is no light within us. Three, two, one. When you look at the inner workings of electrical things, you see wires. Until the current passes through them, there will be no light. That wire is you and me. The current is God. We have the power to let the current pass through us, use us to produce the light of the world, Jesus, in us, or we can refuse to be used and allow darkness to spread. Mother Teresa. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this podcast with other people. The second biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to check out my books on Amazon. There's one called Money for Teens, A Guide for Life. It came out of a personal finance class that I taught. And there are two thrillers, The Conspiracy of 1869 and The Forbidden Book. Thank you again so much. Until next time.